Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast hoping nobody will realise that we've already achieved all of our end-of-year goals. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hi, Corey. It's that time again, listeners, where politicians give their New Year messages and we pick our movers and shakers for the year ahead. Remember that at the start of every year, we pick the men and women who we think will move and shake British politics in 2023. Usually at the end of the year, we then decide who has picked better using the not enough champagne movers and shakers algorithm. Unfortunately, technical glitches or Vladimir Putin uh, meant that the episode was lost from Steve's laptop. Um, so no one will ever know by how much my more influential my picks were. Maybe we'll get to it in passing, Steve. But yeah. um, like many lost artworks, you know the library in Alexandria, I think, that was burnt by the, the Mongols. I'm kind of assuming that it, our podcast is the, the equivalent of that oh, for future historians. What 100%. That's a completely fair you know, comparison. Are you looking forward to this year, Steve? Will it be a fantastic year for Britain? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> um, will it be fan? I think fantastic might be a strong word, a very strong word, perhaps too strong. Um, I think it will certainly be a year for Britain. A year, fantastic. Well, let's get on to that year then. So we are going to pick leaders first. Steve won the toss, so therefore is going to pick first. Which leader, Steve, is going to move and shake Britain? Uh, I'm going to go for Rishi Sunak, simply Ooh. because Prime Minister, and there will always be something that the prime minister does that moves and shakes things even if they're doing it badly um that's yeah. true yeah we have the the a degree to which actually incompetence has shook british politics was probably experienced on the movers and shakers episodes before the liz trust premiership in many ways the podcast was ahead of the curve on that one i was gonna say that might be a theme with a number of my picks Oh, fantastic. Steve's going to try and shoot the moon. Is that what it's called? We're going to have an interesting year for the government, then, if you're right. So, uh, okay, so Richard Sunak, Prime Minister. We, I don't think the first pick picked the Prime Minister last year. It was Keir Starmer, wasn't it? So, uh, But I suppose Richard Sunak knew Broome, and he had a New Year's message, didn't he? He, he did have a New Year's message. Uh, he's got five core things that he's going to look to achieve in the year. Oh, pretty much all five, uh, all five of them are either vague and vague enough that they can claim they've done it regardless or are things that are going to probably happen without any intervention by the government anyway. So, you know, it's, 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 it's good that they're being realistic, at least, I suppose. It's the people's priority, Steve. A phrase mm-hmm. that couldn't be any more new Labour if it didn't arrive on the stage with a big toothy grin having been written by Alistair Campbell. <laughs> So the priorities of British Sunak, Steve, which are also the priority of the British people. So half inflation, uh, which is great. So at the moment it was 11.1%, except the OBR already thinks that inflation will be 3.8% at the end of the year. Yep. But I do like that because obviously I think everyone, well, hopefully not everyone listening, will have had to do a performance review at work. 
And I feel this is very much peak performance review where you put into yourself a work target, which you're going to achieve anyway. And therefore you and your manager can sort of tick it off. Yeah, pretty much. So it's good to see that is happening now as put on the very top of government and not just on our sort of, uh, you know, from the, the gutters that we're watching it. The second one is, is grow the economy, which I mean, really is a bit like living really, isn't it? Um, yeah, I was going to say you can you can have like naught point naught one percent GDP growth and claim you've grown the economy. Um, equally, though, little bit hostage for fortune if things go backwards, which is a very real risk. Well, it's a good job nobody's predicting a recession, is it, Steve? Otherwise, he might look quite silly. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, I, but I suppose what would be really nice is if Britain could maybe grow faster than any other G seven country or major developed nation, but. That's probably asking a bit too much. Yeah, yeah and definitely like, with this lot in charge. He can't really ask for that because he wouldn't achieve that. So mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. And then uh, we this is where Rishi Sunak's national um, fiscal conservatism came in, isn't it? We ensure the national debt is falling. Doesn't actually give a date or a time scale. The weird thing I think, though, is that Rishi Sunak wants to half, half inflation and therefore presumably the Bank of England is, is going to put up interest rates as it did last year to try and curb inflation that is probably going to hit economic growth isn't it and might even store the economy which might the national debt doesn't fall after all yep 100 okay so so that's the, the, and the fourth one um nhs waiting lists will fall that's not going to happen like the, the, that is a hostage to fortune right there you need to actually have a plan in place to actually deal with these things um so unless you're working on a very very loose definition of like waiting lists decreasing you're creating a rod for your own back there because without a plan without funding or or, or, or without something happening that you're implementing you're not going to be able to achieve that so I think there was a plan and funding. The only thing is that, that happened in the autumn. So this isn't a new thing. Um, and the, I, the Institute for Fiscal Studies says that waiting lists are going to fall anyway later in the year. So basically, Rishi Sunak's plan appears to be just to wait for winter to stop, which, to be fair, was what I did in December when it was minus 10 outside. But again, that was more about trying not to freeze in my house rather than a coherent programme for government. Yep. Um, and the fifth one is stop small boats. Uh, and obviously, therefore, Rishi Sunak is going to make sure that when Parliament comes back next week, he's going to ensure that asylum seekers have safe and legal routes to travel to Britain so that not everyone's going on the small boats they have now. Yep. And he's also including action to crack down the criminal gangs who are smuggling people through on the channel. Which are all like like dealing with people smuggling in any form. Not a bad plan, not a bad notion in and of itself. Um, but actually doing it properly and doing it in a constructive way is not something that this government has demonstrated any com- competence at so far. I don't see how it's going to change. And yet again, it's it's creating a rod for their own back. If they're not able to deal with these specific crossings and those numbers stay where they are or like potentially even get higher, then like you've already failed. Like, and even if you do have some mild decreases, guess what? No one's going to actually care that they're mild. You basically promise to stop it. Well, it's a weird, isn't it? Because I feel like the the government 
in many ways has already created the role for Rowan Buck, as you say, because essentially for the last three or four years, they've just had a Home Secretary from the right of the Tory party who's talked them into a big stupor about the 12 people who've come across the channel. Yeah. And they've made it into a massive issue essentially by talking about it so much. And if they didn't talk about it as much, I don't think anyone would really care necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, Pretty much. In Rishi Sunak's defence, uh, there's a policy exchange report that came out earlier this week. And I imagine policy exchange is quite an influential think tank, isn't it, the Tory party? They did some polling and they did find that actually the people's priority, Steve, the new Labour's people's, British Sunak's rebranded new Conservatives' people's priorities are actually the priorities of the British people. So the British people want them to take action on the cost of living and the NHS and small boats as well. Interestingly, the other priority was to build more energy infrastructure. That was the other priority, um, which actually was is Labour's key pledge. So that's kind yeah. of interesting. The more interesting thing, I think, is people are also asked, what should the government not be prioritising? And the three areas were uh, that they don't want pe- the government to do. A, make it more difficult for workers to strike. B, introduce tougher measures to deal with environmental protests. And C, introduce a ban on gay and transgender conversion therapy. Lo and behold, Steve, if that isn't the other plank of the (laughs) domestic agenda. Yeah, I am genuinely bemused by what they're trying to do. The things that actually people care about, they're doing minimal on. The things that are are absolutely easier to do don't actually appeal to the vast majority of uh, of people and don't even necessarily appeal to their voters. Like, but, so there was a, there's a polling on small boats. It looks like that's popular but divisive. So although yep. lots of people don't want small boats crossings to happen, actually, tour, uh, or rather, they although um, it's quite divide the public are divided onto whether or not they want action taken on small boats. Tory voters are more likely to want action than Labour Lib Dem voters. So that sort of makes sense as a sort of wedge issue, but then but does 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 it though? Because if you are talking to talk about Tory voters now, that's what 25 percent of the electorate. If they're identifying as Tory voters now, that means for the people that you've lost and you're trying to win back, they don't care. They don't no, care about small votes. And I suppose they are trying to win them back through basic competence, uh, which I think is interesting because I remember back in ancient history, probably about the summer of 2021 or commentators on the left not to name any names would say why is evil Keir Starmer focusing on competence and not ideology he should be talking about how great socialism is there is no point trying to talk about competence because once Boris Johnson's out of the way then Rishi Sunak or a more competent leader will come up and all of Keir Starmer's work would have been in vain and if only he talked about socialism there'd be a majority I paraphrase but only slightly. Only it turns out, Steve, that the fact that Kistama spent two or three years talking about competence and how Labour is more competent actually has cut through and now Labour's seen as more competent than the Tories than anything. Or, or on most issues anyway. Also, there was the disastrous Liz Truss premiership. Do you remember Liz Truss? I do, I do remember Liz Truss, unfortunately. And she then created the Tories re- record for competence on just about everything. And so Sunak's trying to dig 
the Tory party out of the trust-induced hole, which I think is where these sort of priority pledges come from, don't they? Yeah. It's this, look, I'm delivering it, get on with the job, um, don't let Labour ruin the economy, vote for me to finish it, which I suppose it's the only game they've got, but it has a hole in it. Yeah, it's that people don't think they're competent anymore. No. And like you, you need to do something... There are two ways, basically, to, 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 to make it, to, to make yourself look competent. One is have the other people be incredibly incompetent so that you look good in comparison. That is partially one of the reasons Starmer's been able to kind of like create the aura of competence around Labour. Like there has been some general good work there, but it is a comparative thing as well. The other way that you, um, you, you uh, look competent is by solving issues and actually getting things done which as we've, we've talked about the, the government isn't doing like not in any on the areas that people are actually going to care about well no so the most striking thing from the policy exchange report is when people were asked what is the main government achievement since 2019 30 percent, so by far the most people said nothing <laughs> nothing at all and to be fair to this government which we're not going to say very often uh they did bring in a furlough scheme to help people. Like, you think that that might get mentioned, maybe, like, as just one thing. But the fact that the fact that that's kind of been forgotten about already, I think it's not only an interesting commentary on the politics and the remembrance of COVID and the pandemic, but also is uh, it's damning for the government. It really is. 100 percent it's it's gotten to the point where even things that were largely positive and good good things that were done aren't even necessarily they're not even getting credit for them because people just have either forgot about them because we all want to forget about that though those couple of years and and it's just we don't want to think about it or they're just they're, it's just like well anybody would have done that therefore we're not going to give you credit for it you had to do that like you know what I mean? So it's it's just like there's no there's no it is very much a case of there's no um, kudos being given or gold stars being handed out for doing the absolute bare minimum. So the reaction from com- the commentary are partly positive because Rishi Sunak took 15 questions, which is whoa a marked departure from Liz Trust and dare one say it, Boris Johnson. However, um, I was struck by a quote from James Sean Dixon from Unheard, which I always thought was a re anything more on the sort of thinking right of the yeah. commentary narrated like an adult reading a storybook to a child before bedtime the speeches sunny tone felt misjudged and delivered with such cloying earnestness and saccharine enthusiasm it had the subtlety and grace of a clown in a morgue that's amazing so the clown in the morgue is what we're going to call Rishi Sunak from now on I hope absolutely um, yeah so you picked the clown in the morgue I'm going for the serious man for serious times, Sakir Starmer. Then, well, yeah. I, I think Starmer would have been my first pick. Actually, um, it's an amazing psychological advantage. What being twenty points ahead in the polls does compared to being twenty points behind in the polls. That's the end of my superficial football analysis on that front. In terms of what he's actually said, so he had the New Year's message today. He went to a factory to sh- sort of show the. Uh, white heat of technology hat tip to harold wilson which we all do appreciate on the podcast a good nod to the great harold um 
And uh, also interesting there, Keir Starmer talked about a take back control bill in which he talks about more devolution to try and give local communities power over their lives, which is genuinely in interesting and exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things where depends exactly on how you do it there are lots of ways you can do devolution which don't aren't necessarily the best way to do it the very fact that to be honest we've, we're even having the, that that kind of topic as a conversation in a policy area is massive progress i feel like i don't i don't feel like under blair under brown or really under any of the leaders since then have we been massively focused on on devolution or kind of made it a excelling point maybe under Miliband a little bit but uh, even then I struggle to, to think of anything in, 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 in specifics. I am struggling to remember what Ed Miliband's policy on local government was which is probably we need to find the Ed Stone. <laughs> I don't think that had anything about local government on it to be fair. I mean, um, that to be fair then that's the core point it wasn't a major major plank of the leadership. Starmer won I think the moving and shaker leader of a party last year and, yeah. and it's partly reflected in things like his the the Brown Commission's plans for House of Lords reform, which and we will definitely talk about Lords reform in the future podcast because I'm one of the six people in the country who find that exciting. I mean, I'm um, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those as well. There you go. So. We've got a third of them in the same room, um, <laughs> and uh, that that's taken seriously by commentators as though this is a policy of an incoming government. Yeah, which is interesting. So, um, I think. And also the windfall tax, which we talked about last year, was a start policy. And I think he will still consolidate and make waves in the years to come. That's leaders. Cabinet, then, is my pick. And I'm going to go with Michael Gove. Interesting. I hadn't considered Gove. Well, so Michael Gove, Steve, while the scenery collapses around him, while everything... All the trains don't work. The NHS doesn't work. Michael Gove will just sit there and he'll get things done and he'll be terribly polite while the apocalypse happens around him. So he actually did a thing uh, which is very unusual for the government. So over Christmas, the Northeast Mayoral Combined Authority was created. So there's a £1.4 billion devolution deal. So an actual you know, thing with elections and stuff. He's still the levelling up secretary. And although levelling up seems to have disappeared as one of Rishi Sunak's priorities, uh, given that was old, bad Boris Johnson that probably involved spending money. If anyone is going to make levelling work, it would be Michael Gove. The other thing is, and this caught my eye over Christmas, is he had there was a bit of a row with Suella Braverman on a review into Prevent that William Shawcross has done. And that isn't being published at the moment. So Suella Brevin wants to accept the report in full, wants to publish it. Michael Gove has objections to it. And so it's not being published at the moment. And that implies he's not just having uh, policy achievements happen in government. He's also having influence around the cabinet table. And we will probably talk about a couple of other people who might, but I think this is the return, once again, of Michael Gove, he was, I'm sure he was a previous pick in this area, and I'm going to nail my colours to Michael Gove's mast. Yeah, that that, that seems seems legit. I, I can't disagree with anything you've you've said there. I think, I, I, I think I didn't even think about Michael Gove for this, just because I think he's been very low-key. 
Um, and I'm not necessarily sure if low key is the way to to to, to go for this for the for the cabinet. But mind you, what shall, shall I do mine mine now? Do yours, Steve. I am intrigued. Leaning into the uh, idea of influence does, isn't always positive. Moving and shaking doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing that that what's happening. I've gone for Steve Barclay, the health secretary. Oh, interesting. Because the NHS is in a very dodgy situation and he's going to be front and centre and I think he's going to muck it up royally. Well, see, this is why I think he's more likely to be sacked than to move and shake anything. Steve Barclay has scapegoat written on his forehead in huge neon letters. He's been gotten rid of once and then come back with, come back already, though. I, I don't think Sunak's got the necessarily got that much or, or capacity to do many many major uh, reshuffles. Um, no, fair. Which will feed into one of the other picks as well later on. <laughs> I, th- I think no. I, I th- so I have. Um, I, I think I put Barclay in the sort of Suella Braverman category as well, where. When you talked about, so I thought your pick would be Braverman because you were talking about um, inverse competence. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to talk it talk about, um, but again, I, I sort of put in that bracket of she's more likely to be out of the cabinet at the end of the year than to have achieved anything. Um, the only other two I thought is maybe Jeremy Hunt, but I think Rishi Sunak is very much going to be his own chancellor. I was going to say Hunt was uh, my my secondary pick. If somehow you had ended up going for for Barclay mm. as well, I think Hunt would have been a a reasonable pick. And I I think actually for opposite freeze, uh, I think the opposite to what you've said there. I think Hunt's probably got a hell of a lot more influence because he was the stabilizing force. So I think he was under trust. So if Liz Truss was still prime minister and she'd have lasted more than forty six glorious days he would be unsackable. Whereas now, I, I, well, but I see your point. I, I think maybe, so my my thinking in terms of the irreplaceable minister, that if this minister goes, the government's brought down, which was probably my reserve pick, was Ben Wallace. Interesting. Because um, he's popular with the Tory grassroots. Obviously, the Ukraine war is going to carry on. Um but Ben Wallace outpolled Rishi Sunak in terms of popularity with Tory members. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that Ben Wallace wants to become Prime Minister because Lord knows if he wanted to be Prime Minister, he he's had a lot. Yeah. He's had two opportunities to do it and he hasn't taken either. But I think he's unsackable. And if there, and I have no idea if there will be, but if there is a row with Rishi Sunak over defence spending and Ben Wallace resigns, I think that's the only way that Rishi Sunak is not PM at the end of this year. Yeah, I can see that. But I think Rishi Sunak will be PM. And I think that I feel like defence secretaries are not, they're not going to move and shake as much as Michael Gove will be. And as we have said, Michael Gove is the Mussolini of the Tory party and makes the trains run on time, yeah. but only in that sense. Um, should we do Shadow Cabinet? Do you want to go with your... Yeah. Shadow Cabinet, I've gone for Rachel Reeves as my first pick, primarily because it came down to Rachel Reeves always straighting, and I did straighting last year. Uh, and I felt like, oh, let's let's you know, zhuzh it up a bit oh, and go for, Rachel, yeah. go for Rachel Reeves this time round. But also because I think we are now we're now at the stage where policies are being announced by Labour, 
there is a 100% uh, manifesto being built now um, for the next election. And that involves spending, that involves taxation, that involves Rachel Reeves being involved in everything that Labour does. And I think that's the long and short of it. Um, I think you're probably outside of Starmer, you'll struggle to find anybody else who's probably going to have as much influence over the Labour Party's policy agenda. I agree. And that's part of the reason why she edged out Wes Treating when, when she was my pick. So, you know, I'm going to take vicarious credit for her achievements. Like <laughs> all good straight white men should. Keir Starmer asking his, well, there were reports anyway that Keir Starmer's asked his shadow cabinet to come up with um, no cost policy proposals. Um, which I think is also a a recognition from Labour that uh, the um, one of the ways in which that Labour can lose the next election is if it's turned into a 1992-style tax bomb election. Yeah. And so it's as much about doing that. Um, my... Oh, see, I'm, I'm torn because on the policy agenda front, I kind of want to go with Ed Miliband, who we mentioned is in dispatches, in the lost podcast yeah uh, because a lot of the ideas that starmer put forward at conference are sort of his brainchild the green energy the green new deal business working with government i think though i will go for west streeting because as we said on the lost and the actual podcast that appeared when we checked in and listened about june a lot of background competence good media performer used a lot um as a shadow front bank spokesperson to go out on the news and extend the party's position. And as you said about Steve Barclay, the NHS is the story, certainly of the first third of the year. Yep. Uh, and the government doesn't really have a plan. Labour does have a plan. A massive recruitment drive paid for by closing the threshold on non-DOM tax status. Must have cut through if I can remember it. It's not like you work for the party or anything. Can neither confirm or deny those rumours, Steve. <laughs> Bank bench pick. It's me first, isn't it? Yeah. I'm going to pick Boris Johnson. Interesting. Again, I didn't even consider Johnson. Wow. Well, see, he he, you leave, he leaves the limelight for five minutes, and so quickly we forget. Um, but uh, I um, it's obvious that Boris Johnson would like to come back as prime minister, although. Willis knows why at this point, honestly. Um, it's also clear he hates... Well, actually, maybe it's just because he hates Rishi Sunak. Who knows? But Rishi Sunak betrayed him. Um, but uh, he's already, along with Liz Truss, has um, tried to oppose government policy. And I think no matter what he says or what he does there'll always this, be this suspicion that he wants to be back. And if the Tories are 25 points behind the polls in October and November this year, and there's a possible election within 12 months, I think the unthinkable... I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not even saying it could happen. I'm just saying... It might. It might happen. And also, anything he does is going to be scrutinised to death. And just by... Yeah didn't of having an almost articulate style of speaking he will make waves yeah I, I can't disagree with any of that necessarily 
um i think that's that the, 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 that all makes sense like i think it's a solid pick it's just whether or not because i i can see it being a kind of a, a potential two ways it goes though one is he does th- like not a lot but like a few kind of surgical strikes here or there whether planned or not to um, to cause trouble but they just they do cause trouble um for the government i could see that happening or i could just see him just not doing anything just just being boris johnson he's already um shopping around for another seat so if that's the case is he gonna he's not because he thinks he's gonna lose oxbridge then he's not gonna care about trying to look active or anything like that and given his tendency if he if he finds himself oh i'm being selected over here in this nice safe conservative seat he's just going to bugger off to america constantly and not do anything at all and just uh, effectively keep his head down no i i don't see so i, I all the first of all i love the idea of boris johnson doing an unplanned surgical strike because <laughs> it's only with boris johnson you could say that and it just makes about, sense yeah yeah <laughs> um but the fact that he's looking for a safe seat and not just standing down, getting a pension, buggering to America, getting lots of money for speeches, he still wants to be around and he still wants to... He wants to be the guy, even though everyone knows he can't do it anymore. And probably even he knows in his heart of hearts he really can't, except he was born to rule and went to Eton. So, you know, what else are you going to do? Yeah. Also, Churchill was Prime Minister twice. So... And Cameron wasn't. And that's prob- it's probably all because of something that happened at Eton and Oxford... And never mind. Never mind. Anyway, let's hope I'm wrong and that you're right. Yeah. Cool. So uh, my backbencher, uh, uh, I've gone for Graham Brady. Ooh, okay. Interesting. Because I, 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 I had a massive problem trying to come up with a black bencher from any party um that was i felt like had the potential to do something interesting um so many of your potential like runners riders or or, or whatever are, are now either in the shadow cabinet in government even your troublemakers like steve baker are now in government mm. so i mean and i, I was i was kind of going I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg has started kind of like melding off a little bit from the back benches, but I don't think anybody actually takes him seriously. So I don't think he's going to do anything um, or achieve anything. He was my reserve pick because there were rumours over Christmas that he was mulling a leadership bid. Yeah, Although, which is... As soon as I saw that, I just put my phone down and sort of swayed to side to side, had some more gin. It subsided yeah. eventually. It wouldn't go anywhere. It would not go anywhere. So, like, it would be if he did try and do something, it would be a damp squib, and it would just be like, oh, no, this shows exactly how little influence he does have. Um, so, my my thought process went well. I can either go for a semi-jokey thing like I did last time round and just make my way through some of the other left-wing Labour MPs, but I, I ended up with Graham Brady just because chair of the nineteen twenty-two committee. 1922 still matters. And there is still potential for fallout within the Conservative Party. It is not, you know, happy sailing on the, on the high seas for them. They are very d- kind of like tense. There's not, there's, there, there, there is peace 
between the factions, but the but um, there is not an alliance. I think is the best way to to describe it. They know that they they can't go to war with each other, but they don't get along. And I could easily imagine just events happening, which costs someone their job in the cabinet. Maybe it's Braverman, maybe it's Hunt, maybe it's someone, you know. Um, and that being the uh, kind of like trigger for a whole new round of internecine fighting um, within the uh, within the Conservative Party. And Brady is going to be a very important figure for all of that from the perspective of he is chair of the 1922, he is the voice of the backbenches towards the government on a number of different issues and, and things. So it... He was the best, the best of a bad, bad lot was 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 my perspective. I am not necessarily anticipating um winning this round. But if I do, it's because something's gone horribly wrong for the government. Well, so I think you're right in that is this this I think was harder than most of the years. So when we started in the Theresa May years, I certainly started this with the, the podcast was on David Cameron, which now feels like an ice age ago. But the um, in the May years, I probably don't remember Theresa May, I suppose, Steve. Um, <laughs> but there were lots of people who were chairing select committees who you thought could yeah. even shake. So people like Yvette Cooper there. And then, as you say, the, the Tory rebels, which I'm sort of tipping the all to with Boris Johnson. I think the reason why bread is interesting, though, is because so his seat altering him in, in sale, it had a 6,000 majority in 2019, but it also has, it also has a 60% remain vote. And so actually, if you're looking at Tory MPs a bit worried about their seat, you know, if we're still looking at double digit poll leads across the year, and actually we think there's going to be some tactical voting in those kind of seats, because actually the Lib Dems in 2019 had 11% of the vote, they had 6,000 seats, uh, 6,000 votes in 2019. So you're going to have... And it, this has already started happening with people like Chloe Smith, but you're going to have a lot of anxious Tory MPs worrying about their next move. And yeah. Altrincham and Sale is exactly the kind of seat that you wonder how, yeah, how worried are Tory MPs? Are we still in a situation where actually, actually Labour would just bat your head off the, the largest party? Or are we going to end up with a complete wipeout for the Tories? And so... Brady's attitude on that, I think, is going to be an interesting thing to watch this year. Yeah, I think that's fair. Brady versus Johnson. The big beasts or, I don't know, sort of medium-sized armadillos. Um, respected elder statesman. No, I'm not going that far. Speaking <laughs> of respected elder statesman, Steve, we have politician from neither Labour nor the Conservatives. Mm-hmm. And you, you've shot me because I feel like for the last... Now, even, you know, in the Theresa May years, there were basically, we have the leader of the SNP and the leader of the Lib Dems and hello, Mark, and Happy New Year. But you've not picked either of those people. What is I, going I, on, you crazy maverick? Like, I, Tom Cruise has turned up. I, I, I have not, because I think there's another potential interesting dynamic happening in the background of all of this, which <laughs> I, I felt you probably wouldn't go for. Um, and that's Richard Tice, the leader of reform. Ooh. The, the logic here, I think, is pretty actually self-explanatory in that as the Conservatives fail to deal with issues, they are then opening themselves up to be attacked from the right. 
um, which will start eating away a little bit by bit of their um, of, of, of their vote in certain areas. Tice has already announced that the government stand against every Conservative MP. There are no deals being struck here, um, which means I think there's a massive potential for us to see in the local elections in May. Um, I don't think you'll see a reform making many gains. I think you could see reform adding to the bloodbath that the Conservatives might very well um, be affected by. Um, and I and I think that makes him a very strong contender for this, even if like ninety percent of the people wouldn't know who he is. No, I think that's fair. Um, well, and at the moment, they are polling around the same as the Greens or the Dems, actually. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, this, just, uh, well, just 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 to add more. Oh, actually, I'll go through my uh, my backup one uh, after you do yours. Well, I've gone. So Richard Tice, important though seven percent of the vote is, doesn't run the country, and Nicola Sturgeon does. So I'm going for Nicola Sturgeon. Um, as, we, as a tradition, one of us does. <laughs> absolutely. Well, yeah, we've got to get our Sturgeon quotas. Fish quotas, got to get them in. They're important yeah. now. Um, we talked a little bit on the last podcast about the change of leadership in the SNP. Uh, I mean, there's, uh, you, the response from one of their spokesmen today on Keir Starmer's New Year message was that Britain has a choice between two Tory leaders uh for prime minister which is um an interesting analysis which is probably not borne out by the facts should we no. say no or it's not reply that would get me cancelled but yeah and I, I, I think the logic for choosing sturgeon stands as as, as as it has every year it's a solid pick um my secondary pick um if you somehow had gone down the same route with me of, of, of choosing richard tice um was an SNP person, but it was not Sturgeon. Mary Black? Stephen Flynn, the uh, SNP yeah. Westminster leader. Mm. Um, because Flynn is a is new blood, and it's the sort of thing where if, if Flynn is seen to be doing, within the SNP ranks, to be seen to be doing a good job down in West, Westminster, it's the sort of thing which can get people talking and going, Sturgeon's been on top for a while is it time? And you start to see things going. I wouldn't necessarily, I'm not saying by the end of the year, Nicola Sturgeon will be gone or anything like that, but you could start to see the dominoes lining up. And that's that's what I I, I think Flynn could be the start of, because I believe, I believe he's not necessarily a, 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 an ally in the political sense to, to Sturgeon. But so Flynn beat Nicola Sturgeon's candidate for SNP leader. Yeah. Um, which and I've forgotten their name. I was going to look up and then realised I left the notebook at your house with all my notes in it from last year, <laughs> so I uh, I can't find the moment googling. But yeah, I, I think there's. I mean, you know, Nicholas Sturgeon's been at the top for a while. The that I think the the Supreme Court decision at the end of last year means there's not the capacity for nonsense over another yeah. SNP referendum that there was. Um, other thing with Stephen Flynn worth keeping on is long, long, long time listeners to this podcast and hello to all four of you will know that we have a thing about bald politicians and their electoral successes and therefore i will be watching stephen flynn with interest uh that's just one of my hobbies um <laughs> so so that's fun and yeah uh, i i almost went for someone like nigel farage as a wild card pick so i think it's interesting looking at richard tice who is now attacking the tories for being a a high tax party so they're definitely 
Will we see a Tory defection to reform this year, do you reckon? Nah. No. Like, the, the reason you got UKIP defections was because UKIP looked like they were in a position where they could actually win some seats, arguably. Um, and the people who did it were the absolute headbangers on Europe. Because um, it was Douglas Carswell and, oh God, who was the other one? Mark Reckless. That was it, Reckless, yeah, by name and by nature. Um, yeah, and like they were well known for being, uh, like, you know, Brexit hardliners and 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 like anti EU every uh, on every single kind of like metric. I, I don't necessarily think Tice doesn't have an issue with which to actually make any progress electorally. So that really cuts through. It's just a general sense of the Tories aren't good enough. Right wingers are aware that the Tories aren't good enough. And or they're kind of kind of go, no, we're too left wing or they're too left wing or whatever. I don't think there's enough to kind of make any gain real headway there electorally at the moment. Um, and as such, I don't think you'll see any defections to, uh, to, to, to reform. I think the impact that reform has is it just damages and costs the Tories a lot of stuff, especially in the locals. I think that's right. It feels like the um, the defections over Europe were because there was the totemic issue of Britain's yeah. membership of the EU. Now that we've got Boris Johnson's rubbish deal that everyone basically says is terrible for British business, it's hard. It's hard to know what the equivalent of, say, the referendum party from 1997 who got a million votes. It's hard to know what their single issue would be. I don't yeah. think you're not going to get a million votes talking about small channel crossings. I don't think. Yeah, yeah, and and this and this is the thing we like during the pandemic and things we talked about. Oh, maybe like there could be a thing with like the mask mandates and all of these sorts of things, and nothing ever came of it because the issues that the right likes to kind of focus on don't necessarily resonate. The European issue was a rare one in that it resonated with people and it was one of their pet hates. Their other pet hates that they tend to bang on about don't resonate. And until they find one that does, I think they're kind of going to be stuck floating. So there's... um, Sophie Ridge wrote an article for The Eye uh, between Christmas and New Year and talked about maybe trans rights might be one of them. Um, and it being, I, I really hope the government doesn't stoke a culture war in that area. Um, but I honestly don't think that issue would necessarily work either. No. Um, no, I don't think it would particularly work. And I think it would just be it'd just be seen as you're focusing on stuff that doesn't matter whilst whilst Rome is burning. You're you're fiddling whilst Rome is burning. Hmm. Um, it's which actually in a way is is worse than Nero because now I think the academic consensus is that Nero wasn't fiddling while Rome burned yeah <laughs> and he certainly wasn't doing anything about LGBT plus rights um, it's probably in favour of them actually but we'll we'll move on swiftly from my garbled rememberings about Nero let's talk about something sane Steve let's talk about the British media <laughs> <laughs> which commentator or uh, it's, is it me first? Me first. Yeah. Um, I have gone this time for so the commentator or publication. I've gone for the Daily Mail, uh, partly because I think Rishi Sunak needs to keep the right wing tabloids on side. Um, there is still a bit of a psychodrama happening in the Tory Party, uh, and therefore 
he does need the support of this newspaper, not just because a lot of people read it, but also it's influential in Tory ranks, sets to general the Today programme. And actually they did cover his five pledges reasonably, reasonably lukewarmly well. So uh, the Sun editorial says they're all right, but can we have some structural NHS reform? Yeah, it was lukewarm, but it was on the front page and it was positive, which is one of the few front pages that that was the case. And Rishi Sunak will want to keep it that way. Yeah, fair. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, I've gone for Guido Fawkes. Oh, yeah. Um, this isn't oh, 2004 oh, anymore, Steve. I know. Um, my my logic here, so, so when I say Guido Fawkes, I don't mean Paul Staines, the individual. I mean the actual no. website and the team behind it. Do you mean the Catholic who tried to blow up Parliament? Because uh, that yes. would be a hell of a pick. That if would he, be a hell of a if pick. If he rises no, no. from the dead, <laughs> Tell you what, for, and then V for Vendetta I'll take style. The, I'll take the website and I'll take the potential necromantic reincarnation of the actual Guido Fawkes. I hope he's um, not a necromancer. <laughs> this is the only way the British politics could possibly get worse. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm going for uh, the Guido Fawkes website because actually if you look at a load of the people that had been churned out by work, well, who used to work there, the likes of uh, Harry Cole, Alex Wickham, all of these sorts of individuals. Like, like Stain, Paul Staines has actually done a quite a good job of like identifying seemingly quite reasonably, reasonably talented journalists who are of the right for the most part, um, and then kind of setting them up to be kind of like successful and sending them off elsewhere. Like Cole is now the political editor of, I think it's for The Sun these days, mm. is it? Yeah. Alex Wickham, I think, works for uh, Politics Magazine. Um, is it Blo- or- I thought it was Blo- is it Bloomberg via Politico? Because he used to write yeah. the Politico daily newsletter. Yes. Yeah, I think that I think that's it. He's, he's moved around a couple of times, so, it's, so that might be slightly out of date. But he keeps on moving, he keeps on progressing. And I think if you look into it, there's a small part of me which wonders if, like, at some point during the year, we're going to start seeing you know people moving around like Cole making the leap to the Daily Mail or Wickham becoming a major uh figure here or there or just some other people coming out of it so it's almost like my my choice of Guido Fawkes is it's almost like they're they're they're, they're, they're just kind of birthing like new right wing uh, talking heads and 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 things like that is your, your pick's basically Guido and his alumni yeah. Right. I'm glad you qualified it with promising journalists on the right. Otherwise, I was wondering why we didn't get a call. Um, <laughs> although I suppose we engage in serious analysis, not gossip. But yeah, um, Exactly. Yep. Yeah. That's interesting. I hope that whoever writes a history of British politics in 50 or 100 years, at least one of them uses the Guido Fawkes blog as an angle, because yeah. when it started, it was very much anti- Every, it was basically anti-everyone and it got yeah. sort of top tips from everywhere and then sort of morphed into this sort of vote leave vehicle, even a sort of Boris Johnson vehicle in which you sort of this, you know, libertarian anti-government blogger started then defending the government from its critics. Um, it's a very weird yeah. trajectory that tells you, I think, a lot about how Westminster worked, but I, I, I haven't been on it recently. I, I don't know what this attitude to Sunak is. It's... Like I go on it like maybe once a week just to kind of vaguely keep an eye and see what they're what they're talking about. Um, most of it is just 
not particularly interesting these days, I'll be honest. Um, so, for instance, one of the things that was, uh, because I selected them as for, from a thing I went on the website for them today, and like one of the articles they were they, they put out was, hey, look, there's sewage, like, rolling out of the uh, uh out into the thames by by parliament and rather than kind of talking taking this as a maybe we need to do something about fixing the sewage systems and water environment quality and, and all of that sort of stuff it was just like a smarmy comment uh, about where you we're used to our uh, our politicians talk, talking s uh, talking s word but now we're now they're having to be swimming in it as well or, or whatever it's just like that that kind of gives you the, the the quality of it a lot these days um probably not the first or last article on Gideon folks that turns out to be complete crap yep uh but i still think it's an interesting and i think it's still got resonance on the right um especially certainly a certain part of the right wingers of, of uh, british politics as well and it's good to keep up the not enough champagne tradition of picking a struggling right-wing news outlet which I feel we've done for now three years in a row. So when Guido Fox hits zero readers this year, you'll know why. Uh, <laughs> Wildcard pick then. In many ways, I think the hardest round this year. Yeah, it was quite, quite difficult. I ended up kind of going for on a, along a similar kind of trajectory for Richard's uh, for my pick of Richard Tice, in that there is one figure greater than Tice, looming in the background, who constantly keeps on being brought up as whether or not he might make a re-emergence. And that's Farage. Oh, you went there. I did go there, yeah. I, wow. like, I, I sincerely hope I'm wrong and that he's just going to fade away into relative obscurity and that he's happy doing whatever TV show he's doing, wrangling on about wokeness or whatever. Um, but either the spectre of Farage or Farage himself I could see having an influence and so I just think like I couldn't think of anybody else for a wild card pick that was that seemed likely to to have any kind of impact what is there to say about Nigel Farage that hasn't been said already um not a lot, so let's not bother. Who did you pick? <laughs> I picked Paul Novak, the new General Secretary of the TUC. Interesting. Because something we haven't really talked about are the strikes. And I found it really, really interesting. It kind of goes back to your point earlier, actually, that people aren't giving the government credit or maybe don't want to give them any credit for anything. That The government's had a quite hard line view on the strikes. Um, but A the public polling seems to suggest they're in favour of those striking. And B, they don't want the government to bring in any hardline measures. And I think that's actually quite telling and quite yeah. interesting. Um, and actually, when you think that a lot of these are from public sector workers and from teachers and from doctors and from nurses, some of whom never even strike, usually at all, or some of whom are... It's a mixture of people who never go on strike people who are trusted more than politicians are, people who are receiving below inflation offers so can present it as a pay cut and they're getting public sympathy. It's all of, and it is, you know, it's not the 70s. We sort of touched on this, I think, when we did, we did a podcast last year about how actually the political context of people's responses to strikes is very different. 
Yeah. And we're assuming that can't be Margaret Thatcher on this. And um, I didn't just want to pick Mick Lynch because that felt like buying his stock when it was high. This is this. So this is he's a new uh, general secretary. Francis O'Grady has just left, and um, it's just a, it's just an interesting time, I think, for the trade union movement generally. So they've had some really good successes. Say GMB got some good successes in the gig economy, recruiting people from Uber. Uh, Paul Novak himself had an interview with Politico uh, that came out today, talking about how actually Elon Musk's behaviour at Twitter was a great recruiter for trade unions and lots of people who work in tech and now looking at what unions they can join. I think that prospect, um, uh, that, that tech giants is something we want to try and talk about in the next month or two. So it's an interesting angle on that. Um, and I think there's a, and in, I think there is a space for the trade unions to carve out a, and we actually, and in the, in the lost podcast, we talked a little bit, when you about your Richard Burden pick about the enough is enough campaign. Yeah. And that sort of extra parliamentary work as well that a lot of the left is is getting into. And uh, I think there's a space for the trade union movement to have a to properly move and shape British politics that they probably haven't had in 40 years. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think I agree with 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 all of that. Um I, I, so the the logic of kind of like that extra parliamentary space um being important was like the logic behind my my secondary mm. pick which was actually going to be owen jones um because like does not have influence within the labor party does have influence within that wider extra parliamentary left-wing movement uh and uh, yeah and i think similarly to the uh, to, to the trade unions there's room for him to have influence and, and and kind of move and shake things up. I think the unions in particular and Paul Novak there, like assuming your if if we, if we take your pick as a kind of like a a stand-in for all of the unions themselves, like one hundred percent, absolutely. We like are the unions, Steve. <laughs> no, yeah, I think you're right. It's interesting, and, and to be fair, it's a similar logic behind Farage as well. It's the extra parliamentary. Uh, lobby on the Conservatives. And that's yeah. almost certainly one reason why Sunak, just to bring it back to what we talked about at the beginning, is why Sunak is talking so much about those small boats because Farage is too and will whip that up. And it it's that five or ten percent, which again, talk about one of the other picks, Graham Brady, a reform vote of 10% and a reform vote of 3% is a very, very big difference there. Yeah. You know, between whether are you worried if you've got a majority at a Tory MP of less than five thousand or are you worried if it's less than fifteen? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what an optimistic note on which to end on. We promise listeners we'll be less optimistic next week, in which we're gonna talk about uh, a few podcasts vaguely themed around the future. In the meantime, if this happy and inspiring chat has made you think maybe. If only Not Enough Champagne could be happy and inspiring all the time. And I want to invest my hard-earned entertainment pounds in persuading them to be as happy and optimistic as possible. Is there any way that they could try and leverage us, Steve? 
yeah, you could head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne, where for a couple of quid every month, you can help keep the podcast going. Um, everything that we generate goes towards our running costs. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, you'll get access to uh, unique episodes that we produce for our backers and patrons over there, our champagners, uh, as well as early access to uh, some episodes and uh, some blogs and things like that. Our website's notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Dave Depper composed our theme tune and James Cram designed our logo. And you can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. Happy plotting.